first reading is taken from St. John's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. It's on page 175 in the Pew Bibles. Jesus heals a man born blind. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man sent So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Now then, were your eyes opened, they demanded? He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. The second reading continues at verse 13 on the same page. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But but others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, And we know he was born blind, but how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. 
Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. And as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now, this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So to this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Timmy. And um, we'll keep that passage open. It is hilarious at points, isn't it, that, that passage, and quite profound, I think. I'm going to pray for help as we look, look at it. Let's pray. Father God, you tell us in the Psalms that the unfolding of your words gives light, and so our prayer is simply that you would unfold these words in John chapter 9 to us, that we might be able to see Jesus for your name's sake. Amen. Well, please would you do me a favor as we begin. It's not normally the done thing in church, but please would you shut your eyes. Don't do it if you feel uncomfortable. Please shut your eyes. Now focus on what's around you. Breathe in deeply. What can you smell? What can you hear? What can you feel? Now imagine for a moment with your eyes still shut that these senses were all you had. Now, keeping your eyes shut, think about your journey home after church. Think about all the steps you'll take, the curbs you will stop at, the car you'll drive, the bus you'll catch, the stairs you'll ascend, the key you need to put in that tiny hole in your front door to open it. Think about it. Now, think about doing all of that, only being able to smell, hear, and touch. How does that make you feel? Okay, open your eyes now. Welcome back. I could have had fun there. I I, I didn't. (laughs) Chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. This man had a nose which smelt just fine, a tongue which tasted, skin which uh, touched, and ears which uh, heard. And he had eyes, but his eyes didn't see. And therefore, I'm told, he couldn't process a full 80% of what was around him in the world. And he'd been blind from birth. He had never seen anything, never seen a mountain, nor a mouse, his sister, or a sycamore tree, himself, or the Himalayas. He had never seen anything. He would have had no concept of color. So you say the word red to him or purple or burnt umber and they would have meant nothing to him. He wouldn't have dreamt in pictures for he had never seen one. He was blind, always had been, lived in the dark, always had done. He needed light 
he needed Jesus. And in a rather matter-of-fact way, don't you love it, we're told that Jesus did what no other Moorfields physician could ever do. He healed him. End of verse 7, the man came home seeing. And the first journey home that man could ever have made using his retinas and his optical nerve, seeing the curbs he had always stopped at, seeing the shops he had always passed happily Uh, but not seeing them. And as we saw last week, Jesus works this optician's sign, not for the sake of it, not even supremely for the sake of this formerly blind man, but for the sake of the world. That's us. Verse 5, so that we would see that he is the light of the world. And the miraculous sign at the beginning of the passage serves two purposes simultaneously. The first purpose is rather like if I was to knock over a domino at the beginning of a load of dominoes. It starts a whole process. You read that discourse in John chapter 9 and the dominoes keep on being knocked over. It triggers something. But the second purpose of it is of a metaphor. As Jesus opens the eyes of this blind man, what we see in him physically is a picture for what he promises to do for us if we ask him spiritually. So it's a trigger and a metaphor. I've got three short headings. The first is this, honest sight. Honest sight. Let me ask you at the start, at what point in the passage does this man see? If you had to pick out a verse, which verse would you pick? Would you say verse 7? After all, that is when we're told he can see again. But what about his spiritual sight? What about the clarity with which he can see who Jesus is and respond appropriately? On that front, he's still very blind, isn't he, by verse 7? Verse 11, have a look down. He hardly knows anything of Jesus. He calls him the man they call Jesus. Verse 12, he doesn't know where Jesus is. All he knows is that Jesus has done something rather wonderful for him. The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes, etc., etc., and now I see. He says the same thing in verse 15. All he knows that is that honestly, I can't tell you about Jesus. I'm no expert on him, but I can tell you that formerly I couldn't see And now I can see that you're actually wearing a green jumper or whatever it is. That is his story. And there may be some here this morning who identify with this. Maybe you weren't brought up in a Christian home at all. Maybe your Bible knowledge is shaky slash non-existent. You're not sure whether you own a Bible. If you do, it certainly hasn't been read. You like singing the songs in church, listening to the songs while I preach. You certainly enjoy listening to the prayers and saying amen, and you find the sermons intriguing, but you are not an expert on Jesus. Having said that, you know that he's doing something rather wonderful in your life. Perhaps church for you is the place where you feel increasingly at home. You couldn't say why, but that's true. Or the place where your children just enjoy running around and meeting friends and having fun. 
or the place where, and again, you couldn't explain it, but guilt seems to lift from your shoulders, and that is a very pleasurable experience. But either way, you couldn't tell anyone about Jesus very much. You're not a theologian, but you could tell them that he's beginning to do wonderful things in your life. And can I say, if that's you, great. You will get to know Jesus better in time, and that is a slow process, but a wonderful one. But you know when someone talks to you, if that's you, and they say, so why have you started going to the ark on a Monday? Or why have you started coming to St. Michael's, you know, when you normally lie in on a Sunday? And to be honest, you're panicked when that question is asked. You think, oh my goodness, I've been found out. I have no idea what the answer is. Can I suggest an answer to you? You can just say what this blind man says and just give a bit of your personal story. Say, to be honest, I don't know much about Jesus between you and me, uh, but I've just discovered that he's rather wonderful. (laughs) Or I've discovered I feel at home amongst these people. You know, it's pretty simple. You're not going to win the Nobel preaching prize for what you say, and that's fine. But it is honest about what you now see in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what this blind man does, and I think that's wonderful. But notice, this blind man applies his mind, all his critical faculties, to the Jesus identity puzzle as the passage gets read on and on. And he begins to work some things out. End of verse 17. He works out that Jesus maybe could be a prophet, It's his first stab at a theological question. Turns out Jesus is more than that, but he's not far wrong. He thinks, you know, how could someone not from God have done the optician's miracle with me? No, he must be from God. And then he gets even clearer in verses 30 to 33. He has a second stab at the theological question. And the point is this. Through a process of intelligent deduction, he begins to zero in on who Jesus might possibly be. And can I say, there is a funny idea going around that Christianity is simplistic and doesn't require or benefit careful study of the mind. Probably about a year ago, I was chatting with a gentleman by that pillar there, I remember it vividly, and he was asking me who I was and so on, and he found out that I'd done a theology degree. His eyebrows were raised really quite high at that point because, as he told me, he had no idea that Christians had enough to study to merit three years of study. He knew that people studied other, other religions, but Christianity is very simple, isn't it? What on earth had this guy been studying for three years? There's this idea going around that Christianity is simplistic, just a place for the happy, clappy songs and those who have a penchant for right-wing politics or something like that. Now, that is, that is not true. And all the way through this passage, this blind man applies his mind to the problem of who Jesus might possibly be, and he begins to get closer to the true answer. And we're told in the Bible, in Romans, that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds And that is why we put such careful thought into the Big Question series or the Alpha Course, which starts on the 23rd of March, or the main events as Roger's preparing his talks. It is why we're not trying to emotionally hoodwink anyone. We're just trying to say, here's Jesus. Who do you think he is? Let's look at the evidence carefully. Let me read some verses we didn't have read, though. 
verse 35 to 38. Jesus heard that they'd thrown the blind man out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You've now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you now. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Can I say that intellectual study of the Lord Jesus Christ will only get us so far? And as is the case in this passage, so is the case for every human being, that ultimately Jesus has to reveal himself to us. We cannot apprehend him with the powers of our own intellect alone. He has to reveal himself. And that is why, besides the careful study of the scriptures, we need to pray for his help when we read the Bible. We must pray. Did you ever have to do one of those opticians' tests? I always feel a mild panic and a cold sweat when I have to do them. But you're faced with a page filled with, I think, often green dots for some reason. And they say, uh, can you see anything? And you, you have an inkling he's not talking about the book or the green dots. There must be something more. And the more you look at it, the more, you know, different angles. And you, and you squint a little bit, you look down. And to some of us, what appears is often a number in the middle of the page. I think it's often the number 68 for some reason. And it's often in a different color dot. It's in red dots, let's say. Now, the reason some people cannot see that number is that it's not a problem with the evidence. The number is there in the red color. It's not a problem with the evidence. It's a problem with the eyes. It's called color blindness. You know that. And so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's there in Scripture, and he will benefit, he will pay back intellectual study. It's not a problem with the evidence, as we've seen in the Big Questions course. If people squint at him and look at him and try and get him and still don't get him, it's not a problem with him. It's a problem we might call Jesus blindness. Not a problem with the evidence, it's a problem with us and our hearts. And so we need to pray that Jesus will unblind our eyes and enable us to see him. To do a similar miracle in our lives to the one he does in this blind man's life. And if you wonder how he can do that, do come along to our Lent course. We're looking at the person, the Holy Spirit, who opens our eyes. So honest sight. Secondly, stubborn blindness. Stubborn blindness. Let me read out verse 39. It is a stunning verse. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and, and here's the, 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 the thing, and those who see will become blind. And that's what we're going to see happen here. This is the Pharisees and a slightly wider group around him, around them. And I think there are four stages, if I might suggest it, of their stubborn blindness. See if you agree with me. And these four stages are replicated in the 21st century every time someone encounters Jesus and is stubborn against him. So run with me. Step number one, they discount the evidence. This is verses eight to nine. Uh, the blind man's neighbors and those who'd formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, others said, no, he only, he's just a lookalike. 
But he himself insisted, and don't you love this? <laughs> Jumping up and down, raising his hand. I am. I'm the same man. It's amazing what people have to believe when they discount the overwhelming evidence for Jesus, his claims to be God and to offer eternal life. I've seen people get themselves in all sorts of intellectual contortions trying to avoid the conclusion that Jesus was physically, really, historically raised from the dead. Or all sorts of intellectual contortions trying to work out a better fundamental reason for the establishment of human rights other than the Christian faith. People will twist themselves and do gymnastics to try and avoid the conclusion that Jesus is God. And so it is here. They prefer the extraordinary conclusion that they found an exact look-alike for this formerly blind man to such a degree that they neglect to ask the formerly blind man who's jumping up and down and saying, ask me, ask me, at all. Amazing. They discount the evidence. Step number two. They conclude before hearing the evidence. Verse 24. Speaking to the formerly blind man, they say, give glory to God. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. We know it. That is what is called an a priori assumption. It is an assumption they come to the evidence with and want the evidence to reinforce. That's what they've concluded. They say, look, we know that Jesus is just a regular human being, and there can't be anything special about him, so please, Mr. Formerly Blind Man, if that's really who you are, just tell us that there's nothing special about Jesus, won't you? In other words, here's my conclusion. Please back it up with your evidence. It's a case of the intellectual tail wagging the dog in a very serious way. And it's intellectual foolishness. They conclude before looking at the evidence. Step three, they discount the witness. This is verse 34. They respond to the blind man's logical argument with very angry tones. You were steeped in sin at your birth. How dare you lecture us? This is what is called an ad hominem argument, and that just means against the man or against the person. And we see it in politics or the press all the time, don't we? If someone's argument is too persuasive and we don't like the conclusions that I'm being led to, then what do you do? Well, you, th you sling mud at the one who's making the argument. That's what you do. You, you cause a character slur on them in the press, and so the argument is dismissed. It's ad hominem. And that's what they do here. They discount the witness. And finally, step four, they remove the witness entirely. End of verse 34, and they threw him out. This is what our freedom of speech is there to prevent uh, when people don't like hearing about Jesus from someone like me, I suppose they have one of two options. The first is to get rid of me from their hearing, and the second is to get rid of themselves from my speaking. And that happens. Don't answer the calls. Don't come to the second week of the big questions. Or um, don't come to church on, on a Sunday. Why? I just... They'll give all sorts of reasons, but... For some, the reason will be, I want to remove the witness. I want to remove the witness. And of course, in some parts of the world, the removal of the witness is much more serious than not answering the phone. It is killing the witness, such as the dislike for the message. So, 
Four steps to stubborn blindness. And notice the thing which really angers Jesus in verse 41 is not even so much their blindness, but it is their profession of sight. Did you notice that? The fact that being blind, they profess 20-20 spiritual vision. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Do you see that? Their spiritual blindness grows even as their conviction that they can see grows through John chapter 9. And that is a terrifying thing. There is nothing more blinding than spiritual blindness for this simple reason that not only can they not see, but they cannot see that they cannot see. And there's no deeper blindness than that. So if there's anyone here who feels that what I've just described could be them, can I commend to you two things? First, why not begin to engage with the evidence in an open-minded way? Come to Alpha. Come to the events week, as Tim was um, saying earlier on. Come. Don't be afraid of the arguments. You know, Tolstoy said, free thinkers are those who are willing to use their minds without prejudice and without fearing to understand things that clash with their own customs, privileges, or beliefs. He said, this state of mind is not common, but it is essential for right thinking. Second thing, can I commend to you reading one of the Gospels and praying what Michael Green said to us was the atheist's prayer. And if you think that's an oxymoron, I think I agree. Here's the atheist's prayer. Lord God, I know you don't exist, but if you do, show me your truth as I read this Gospel. Amen. Would you do that? Third little point, personal light. Honest sight, stubborn blindness, personal light. Can I say it is not a childish thing to be afraid of the dark. It is a universally human thing. There has always been and always will be a booming marketplace for lights. You'll see them if you go to Ikea, light fittings. But more profoundly, capital L, light, truth, purpose, meaning, rightness, light. Light to shoo away the darkness of uncertainty and of fear. There are many purveyors of light, philosophically speaking. Think of the so-called Enlightenment movement, 18th century largely, and saying all we need to shed light and to dispel the darkness is science and empirical thought. No one lives that way. Science is good, but it doesn't feed us emotionally or spiritually. Or think about the claims to enlightenment from uh, Buddhism or Confucianism or Hinduism. Those claims to light. Or increasingly, my friends, I don't know about yours, are increasingly going to hedonism for light. Personal pleasure. But that is leaving them in the dark still. Somehow the hangover the next day or the bill when it arrives after the meal, it kind of dispels any light that once was shod. Or the memories, the photos, the thrill, the taste fade all too quickly. And so there are reams of people in our city of London waking up the morning after or driving to work the day after the weekend or the holiday thinking, isn't there more to life than this? Why is it still so dark Consider the lyrics from this song by the band Passenger I I listened to last week, and it fits. They say this, If we all light up, we can scare away the dark. 
We wish our weekends away, spend our weekends in bed, drink ourselves stupid and work ourselves dead. We wish we were happier, thinner and fitter. We wish we weren't losers and liars and quitters. We want something more, not just nasty and bitter. We want something real, not just hashtags and Twitter. It's the meaning of life and it's streamed live on YouTube. But I bet Gangnam Style will still get more views. We're scared of drowning, flying and shooters. But we're all slowly dying in front of computers. If we all light up, we can scare away the dark. I was listening to that song and I wanted to say to them, but we can't, can we? I am not the light of the world and neither are they. We've been trying for all of human history and still our fear of the darkness remains, felt most poignantly when we look into the grave. We forget that the light is not an idea or a philosophy or a lifestyle. It is a person. It is a he. Listen again to Jesus. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Let me pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, help us to be terrified by the stubborn blindness of the Pharisees. Help us to have the humility to pray for you to shed light on your scriptures, to reveal yourself to us. Give us the courage to be honest with what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would delight this week in you, the personal light, the light of the world. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen. <clears throat>